Greetings, everyone. This is David Parfit, Senior Correspondent for the Diz Unplugged. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show retired Executive Vice President and Ambassador for Walt Disney Imagineering, Disney legend, and friend of the Diz Unplugged, Mr. Marty Sklar, President of Marty Sklar Creative, Inc. Welcome back to the show, Marty. Well, thanks, David. I'm uh, happy to be with you uh, uh, help celebrate Walt, Walt Disney World's 40th birthday, I guess. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So on Saturday, October 1st, Walt Disney World turned 40, celebrating the grand opening of Florida's Magic Kingdom. And so we thought we would talk a little bit about your thoughts and impressions on the very beginnings of Walt Disney World. Great. Do you remember the very first time you traveled to Florida and saw the land that would eventually become the Magic Kingdom? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was October of uh, 1967, and, you know, it's etched pretty strongly in my mind because uh, it was an important um, trip because uh, Dick Irvine, who was the design head of Imagineering, you know, from the beginning uh, when it was set up under Wet Enterprises, decided that uh, we really had to all be on the same page, and so we put together a trip on the the Gulf Stream 1, which is uh, still on display at at the uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios in Florida. Uh, and we had quite a, a delegation on board. We had uh, uh, the Imagineers were Dick Irvine and uh, John Hinch and Bill Martin, who uh, ended up being the principal designer of the Magic Kingdom, actually, and Marvin Davis, who did the master plan for both Disneyland and Walt Disney World. And there was Welton Beckett, the architect whose firm did... Uh, the uh, Polynesian and the Contemporary Hotel design, and uh, the two important Joes in the company, Joe Fowler, who ran Disneyland, and Joe Potter, who was uh, actually the first employee of Walt Disney World. He had come from Robert Moses' staff in, uh, uh, at the New York World's Fair. And uh, Dick Nunes, who ran the parks, and Card Walker, who was uh, later the chairman of the company. At that time, he was the head of marketing. And the whole idea was to get all of us thinking about uh, all the things that needed to be done there. And, you know, we, we looked at some hotels in the, in the South Atlanta and, and the Bahamas, and, and uh, then we ended up, all of us, at, at Walt Disney World. And that was, it was an amazing trip. And, uh, of course, I was a kid. <laughs> I was, uh, let's see, I was 33 years old at that time. And these were all the senior executives and legends and, you know, the whole works. And what how, the way it turned out was that there were so many issues that, that uh, had to be resolved that uh, they decided, Dick Irvine decided to leave me behind. <laughs> Is that right? Uh, they all went home. <laughs> and they they left me behind and what we did was uh, we rented two helicopters a big army job and a, and a, uh, and a bell three passenger bell helicopter and uh, it was uh, uh, they sent Carl Frith who was a photographer one of the photographers at Disneyland uh, at that time I had, I had hired Carl when I was Working at Disneyland, and the three and the pilot, we sent it. They, they had a pilot, of course, and the three of us spent three days flying over that property. And uh, Carl shot 
uh, motion picture footage from the big uh, army helicopter and uh, uh, stills from the bell job, often with me holding onto his belt while he leaned out <laughs> so he could get a better shot. So he wouldn't and fall out of the amazing. helicopter. Yeah, and a pretty amazing um, history and uh, record of what the property looked like before anything was done, because all that had been done at that point, there was a, a road, the east-west road, a dirt road in, basically where uh, Buena Vista Boulevard is today, and there was a partial dirt road coming up from uh, what is uh, now uh, 194, and uh, we cleared 100 acres where we were going to put the Magic Kingdom, and that was all. So, you know, flying over a piece of property like that, 28,000 acres, nothing on it, <laughs> nothing on it. Uh, it was pretty amazing. So at the D23 Expo, Imaginary Legends, Bob Gurr and Alice Davis used the words jungle and bug-filled swamp to describe the Florida property. Did you have a similar impression when you saw it well, when you were flying over? Well, it wasn't really uh, quite uh, that bad. There were parts of it like that. In fact, the, the Reedy Creek, Creek Swamp at the south end of the property, I mean, it's still an amazing swamp. Uh, and both the Reedy Creek and the Bonnet Creek, which are on the east and west sides of the property, uh, flow into that area. So that is a, a pretty much jungle. But there is a lot of high ground, too, because uh, there was a state senator, uh, Senator Bronson, in Florida who owned a big piece of that property and he ran cattle on that land <laughs> and uh, which was very prevalent in central Florida uh, not only uh, orange groves but um, cattle operations and nearby at Ocala there are horse operations and so there was, there was lots of uh, well for Florida it's pretty high ground because you have to remember in Florida I think the highest point in the whole state is in, uh, in the panhandle somewhere is 325 feet above the sea level, so you never get high. Uh, you never get any peaks, or, uh, really. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there, there were a lot of uh, bugs that had to be controlled before you had were able to have uh, pro uh, people on that property and things like that, but it, really I would never describe it as a jungle. There were environmental challenges, which uh, the company has been very good at, at uh, dealing with and and uh, uh, working with the environment and not uh, and, and not ruining the whole spirit of what was there in Florida. In a 1965 film that you wrote for Walt Disney, one of the things he said when announcing the Florida project was, unlike Disneyland, Disney now had the blessing of size. And you already mentioned that it was 28,000 acres, 43 square miles, and twice the size of Manhattan. Besides the sheer amount of land in Florida, were there other unique advantages to building on the site that the company didn't have in California? Oh, yes. You know, water. Uh, Bay Lake, beautiful natural lake that uh, the Contemporary Resort is built uh, uh, close to, and also the Wilderness Lodge, and also... The campgrounds are all uh, play off uh, that beautiful lake with the island in the middle. It was at that time it was called Riles Island. Uh, and what was amazing, a couple of things about that that uh, show 
how Disney handled this situation. You know, the the water that drained into the lake had uh, came from uh, distances and close up where there were a lot of cypress roots, and and the the quality of the water was awful, really awful. So uh, Joe Fowler and uh, Joe Potter, you remember Joe Potter uh, had once been the the um, ahead of the Panama Canal Zone before he went to work at the New York World's Fair with uh, Robert Moses and Joe Fowler had had run the San, Fran- San Francisco shipyards during the Second World War so these guys were really knew what they were doing and, and uh, th- what they did was they actually drained that lake that whole lake and uh, so they could control the water as we do today control the water quality that comes into it and uh, at the bottom of that lake uh, there's all that white sugar sand that's now uh, around the contemporary resort and, and uh, the beaches at the wilderness and the, and the campgrounds uh, so you know <laughs> one day as all of Florida it was one of once the ocean uh, so um, that was a, a huge undertaking but very very important so people could uh, enjoy the use of that lake but water was a great asset you know it's a challenge because uh, when we had that hundred acres uh, where the uh, Magic Kingdom site of the Magic Kingdom had been cleared uh, and we put a big yellow X I still have the picture standing on that uh, site that big yellow X with Dick Irvine and and, uh, Weldon Beckett Uh, but John Hench uh, dug a hole about a, a foot deep and we came back the next morning, and the hole was full of water. <laughs> so and you knew you were you're dealing with uh, very close to the the water table at ground level. I always wondered how you dealt with that to sink the concrete pylons for the monorail with such a, a high water table. Well, it was only an issue in, in in one place, and that was many years later when we got to Epcot, and uh, we found one area that well, that was a sinkhole. Uh, and if anybody ever wonders why there's such a long distance between the uh, future world and the start of World Showcase, it's because there's a big sinkhole there that we still haven't found the bottom to. And wow. you, couldn't, you couldn't put a pylon in there because uh, it would disappear. <laughs> it's so deep. And, and uh, But, uh, you know, you, can, you, you would always find, uh, depending upon how deep you had to go, uh, some place you could anchor your your uh, piling, so uh, it you know it was a challenge, but but not something that is uh, not something that people um, get used to dealing with. The engineers get used to dealing with it. By the way, we really had to think about those things when we got to Tokyo Disneyland and Hong Kong Disneyland, which are built in reclaimed land, right. basically what had been water before. So uh, these were some early lessons, I think, that paid off years and years later at, at uh, other projects. Right. So what was Orlando of the late 60s and early 70s like when the Magic Kingdom was being built? Well, you know, it was very small. Uh, and um, we we actually didn't get into Orlando very often because we stayed at, at uh, hotels, out uh, motels. There weren't very many of them, but we stayed out by the property 
and uh, we we got to places like Winter Park uh, where there were good restaurants and things like that. But uh, I give you one illustration in 1967, that same trip, October, when uh, when I left, um, I discovered that the Orlando Airport, which was uh, actually called McCoy Field at the time because its prime purpose was a military airfield. And at that time, there were uh, four uh, airlines, that, that uh, commercial airlines that served Orlando, and seven flights a day. And just to give you a little sense of that, uh, today, I, I actually pulled out some figures in 2010. The Orlando International Airport, for the 12 months of 2010, handled 35,100,000 passengers, daily passengers, 95,157, annual flights, 309,000, daily flights, 878, international passengers, and in 2009, 2,977,920 people. So you can imagine when I go down there and and think about that, it's a culture shock, I guess you'd say. Yeah, it's amazing going from seven daily flights to 878 daily flights. Kind Isn't of says it all. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to it's hard to believe, but uh, fortunately, the area has uh, become, you know, the uh, tourism mecca. mecca of the United States for families. Of the world, too. For the world, yeah. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. On October 1st, 1971, the opening day for Magic Kingdom, there was a surprisingly small crowd, just under 10,500. Was there any concern at the Disney Company regarding those light crowds on opening day? Well, I think the concern was more in the people in, in Orlando because, you know, there had been so much hype about this thing. And, we had a, a preview center that we did um, there, which drew in, in a little over a year a million three hundred thousand people coming just to see what we were going to do. Uh, and uh, so, you know, you expected, and I know in Orlando they expected huge numbers of people, and only a little over ten thousand people showed up. But the, you know, uh, I remember uh, Don Tatum. Uh, was quoted in, in the Atlanta papers saying, we're not disappointed at all, you know, we're, we'd like to be able to, um, we didn't expect um, a lot of people because we think you know, they got scared off by all the hype. And and I know Jack Linklist, uh, who later became president of Disneyland, a good friend of mine, we worked together for many years at Disneyland, and uh, Jack said, you know, we like this kind of thing because it gives us a chance for what we always call a soft opening. It gives us a chance to train our people and to break in the attractions and and to uh, be really ready when we have the official opening. And actually, the official opening was the end of October. So we had about uh, three weeks, almost a month, actually, before uh, there was a big television show and, and the official opening. And that was it's a great advantage for the operators and also our people who would uh, design the, the, the ride systems to make sure they work properly and uh, training the cast members, all of that. Uh, and, it, and, you know, you have to remember that Central Florida at that time, there wasn't a great, uh, there, there wasn't a great source of uh, em, uh, employees. So all of that had to be 
developed and worked out and recruitment, and et cetera, et cetera. That's a good point. And, and besides that, you know, Disney had never operated any hotels, and here all of a sudden we were operating uh, two hotels, uh, the Contemporary and the, and the Polynesian. So all of those things, it was a great advantage to be able to uh, have some time to work out the bugs. Speaking of the hotels, you had the Contemporary and the Polynesian, and we've seen some of these plans of the other hotels that were originally proposed to be around Bay Lake. Are there any of those hotels or even attractions that were scrapped that you in particular would have liked to have seen built? Well, I think there are a couple of concepts over time that that, uh, we had. The first one actually um, was almost ready um, to go out to the, uh, have the working drawings done. It was for the site that the Grand Floridian is on now. It was an Asian hotel, and it was really a nice job. Uh, and so I think that would have been very attractive, not necessarily more attractive than the, the uh, Grand Floridian, which has been an amazing success and popular. And there was a uh, we had a, a site near the Contemporary where. Uh, a Venetian hotel was developed with canals and things like that, and I think that would have been a lot of fun to to do. That came along a little bit later, uh, so I guess those two things uh, were kind of, you know, you, a lot of times we work on things that imaginary uh, that never see the light of day, and you just you just have to be uh, uh, know that that's the way the the, the business works. Uh, I think there were a couple of other things which, in retrospect, we probably were fortunate we didn't do. Uh, Mark Davis had a grand concept for a Western River expedition, but it was a lot of uh, cowboys and Indians, and I think maybe in the years that followed, maybe that would have been a little, you know, not exactly the right thing to do. And wouldn't also, have held up so well. I don't think it would have, uh, actually, some of the, the things. I mean, there were great comical ideas that Mark had, gags, like in the, in the Pirates. But, you know, that was one of the things that we were going to do instead of doing uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. And uh, that's why there wasn't, when the park opened, there wasn't the Pirates of the Caribbean. It didn't come along till a couple of years after uh, we opened when we did the Caribbean Plaza. Going back to opening day, Alice Davis talked about her memories of opening day and standing on top of the Main Street Railroad Station as the band of 76 trombones shook the building as they marched underneath. You are the only cast member who's been at the opening of every Disney theme park. So what do you remember from October 1st, 1971? Well, I guess the big thing was exhaustion. (laughs) (laughs) We were all exhausted, you know. We, We... Everybody was working so hard to get, as we always do in in the last days of a park, and uh, this being the biggest thing that that we'd ever done, um, it it was particularly difficult. And, and, you know, uh, you started out some of these questions about what was Orlando like in those days. Well, there wasn't a a great infrastructure, so, you know, bringing in uh, supplies, uh, you know, Orlando Ferrani set up an organization called PICO, Project Implementation and Coordination Organization, PICO. And the whole purpose was to make sure that 
the designers got what they needed the, and that supplies were, uh, came on time and uh, you know how are you you know we shipped the monorail beams from the state of Washington it was the only place they could be built so uh, all of that coordination was a huge huge challenge uh, to accomplish because as I say there was there was no infrastructure in the Orlando area at that time I think there were 250,000 people when we uh, in the Orlando greater Orlando area when we started and you know now if you take a peak day at Walt Disney World uh, if you take uh, cast members and guests together there's over 300,000 people on that property wow. so uh, uh, it's a little different world but uh, you know I also I remember and this involves Roy Disney I remember the day before um, opening when when uh, Roy was um, practicing, if you will, for uh, the dedication, and uh, he was sitting on the park bench in Town Square, and the characters in full costume would come up and and sit next to him, and, and uh, I suspect they were chatting. Although we won't admit that about the characters, uh, but uh, I remembered that a long time later when we went to do the, the uh, a sculpture a statue of Roy and I suggested to Blaine Gibson that he do it with sitting on a park bench and sitting there with uh, one of the characters and, and he picked Minnie Mouse and if you ever go in, in you know a town square and in the Magic Kingdom there's Roy and and uh, holding hands with Minnie and it's a really beautiful little uh, sculpture so I remember that very distinctly and it looks like they're having a chat too absolutely absolutely it was, it was a, a good idea but it was based on something that really happened speaking of that dedication on October 25th Roy Disney read the dedication speech that you wrote the plaque paid tribute to Walter Elias Disney and intentionally reflected that speech read by Walt Disney for Disneyland's dedication in 1955. When you were hearing Roy Disney reading that speech dedicating Walt Disney World, were you thinking of Walt Disney at the time? Well, yes, definitely. And uh, I was also thinking uh, about Roy because I really didn't know Roy before um, Walt died. I mean, I had worked with him on uh, annual reports, uh, for three or four years, I, I wrote Roy's messages and Walt's messages for the annual report, so I did get to know him a little bit, but he Roy was so dedicated to achieving, realizing his brother's dream of Walt Disney World, and that's really what I, I, I was reflecting on, and, um, and also I thought it was important in the words that are in that dedication plaque, you know, saying that it's a tribute to the philosophy and life of Walter Elias Disney, because it was, you know, and uh, Roy was so dedicated to carrying that out, and uh, he was already basically retired. Um, he, I think he was 74 when we opened uh, uh, Walt Disney World, or maybe even a little older than that, and he put so much effort into it, and and solving some of the, the uh, challenges and and disputes that happened uh, happen on any construction project, especially one that I think was the biggest construction project 
perhaps in the country at that time. Uh, and, you know, he just put all his effort into it. And three months after we opened, he had a heart attack and passed away. So that was, in, in, in the short term, that was very sad. But I, I was a great admirer of his dedication and his purpose in achieving what uh, we set out to do, what Walt set out to do at Walt Disney World. And I tried to reflect that in the copy for the plaque. One of the things you said at the D23 Expo that really struck a chord with me was that Roy D- Disney really sacrificed himself to make his brother's dream come true. That's There's no question about that. There's no question about that. Um, he put all his effort into that, and there were lots of challenges, not just uh, uh, you know issues about construction, but we also had a partner, and that was uh, United States Steel, a partner on the building the hotels. And the Disney's didn't like partners, and uh, just about the time we opened, uh, Roy um, was able to buy out U.S. Steel, so Disney was not uh, uh, didn't have a, we didn't have a partner at Walt Disney uh, World. And so all of those, you know, those financial issues, and, you know, if you look at the, the history of what happened, um, Disney self-financed that whole project, and and Roy was able to do that. And it, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty genius stuff from a financial standpoint. Well, Marty, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and share your thoughts and memories on the 40th anniversary of Walt Disney World. Well, thank you. I mean, it, it's uh, I have such great memories of all the people that made this happen and uh, continue to make it happen because, you know, Walt Disney World, there's, there's no place like it anywhere in the world. It is the number one resort in the world, easily for families, and that uh, keeps getting better with things that the, the company continues to do. And, uh, gosh, uh, you know, starting with one park and, now four and then the water parks and you know over 30,000 hotel and vacation club uh, rooms and so much to do in fact I always tell people if you're going to go there I said don't think you're going to see everything you know pick a few things really enjoy it and get ready to come back with for other things that you saw but didn't have time to do otherwise you drive yourself nuts that's right. So if you enjoy listening to Marty's stories, I understand that you just finished the first draft of your book on October 1st. Well, that's true, and uh, I'm pretty happy with it. There's a few other things I'm still revising, but my daughter, Leslie, is doing the editing and typing, and I hope to have it ready to uh, uh, to pitch to a publisher, or more than one publisher, uh, early next year, and then uh, I hope to have it out sometime middle or so of next year. I'm very happy with what I've done so far, but I'm not going to pat myself on the back until it's, it's finally done. <laughs> well, we'll have to keep an eye out for that, and hopefully you'll let us know when the book gets published. You will know, because uh, I don't mind uh, self-promoting. <laughs> with your help, of course, David. Of course. <laughs> This has been David Parfit, Senior Diz Correspondent, talking with Imagineering legend Marty Sklar, and be sure to look for Marty's first book to be published in 2012. Thanks for listening, and thanks again, Marty. Thank you, David. I enjoyed it.